Appendix C, Help for the Poor and the Meaning of Jubilee. Section 1. Misconceptions of the Jubilee Principle It has been fairly common among Christians who have sought to develop a biblical perspective in terms of which to address the problems of modern economies to see in the Jubilee Land Lease Laws of Leviticus 25 a paradigm for some form of wealth redistribution program. At least this has been the case in Britain, where some form of socialism has been adopted by most Christians as the type of economic organisation of society that comes nearest to fulfilling what is considered to be Christian ideals of economic behaviour. It is assumed that the restoration of ancestral lands every 50 years in the Mosaic economy constituted primarily a form of, quote, social justice, end quote, in which those who had over the years acquired wealth through the purchase of land were required to redistribute that wealth in the form of land to the poor. The Jubilee has thus been seen as a form of capital redistribution as well as general wealth redistribution. This is, however, a mistaken idea. The Jubilee was not essentially about the redistribution of wealth, capital or otherwise, and the benefits accruing from the Jubilee land laws were not directly to the poor since the rich stood to gain also and, as we shall see, many of the poorest in society stood to gain nothing or even lose what little they had as a result of the implementation of the Jubilee. Yet in spite of this, the idea has persisted. For example, Alan Storkey writes, quote, It was a fundamental tenet of the Mosaic Law that, as people naturally became poor through various processes, some accidental and some involving exploitation, they were not only to be helped through various neighbourly activities, but also through state activity. In the Mosaic Law, this was far more radical than anything we would envisage now. It was basically a redistribution of wealth, especially land, whereas we tend to limit redistribution to income and leave wealth relatively untouched. Compare Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15. This was a matter of law and of state control, and it seems inevitable that Christians who take the biblical teaching about the poor seriously must be committed to a fairly radical view of wealth redistribution through legalization and the state. End quote. In spite of the claim made here, there is no biblical evidence to support the notion that the Jubilee laws of Leviticus 25 or the Sabbath remission of the debt and manumission laws of Deuteronomy 15 constituted a form of state controlled or state enforced wealth redistribution. These texts, therefore, certainly do not commit Christians to taking seriously a radical program of wealth redistribution through legislation enforced by the state as a means of helping the poor. It is, of course, true that the Bible requires the wealthier members of society to help the poor. This will not be contested at all here. What will be contested is that it is the role of the state to enforce this kind of welfare by means of wealth redistribution programs. Of the 613 laws in the Torah, only a small number relate to the role of the magistrate or civil government. Most require individuals to govern themselves and their families in terms of just principles of behaviour and compassion for the poor as expounded in the Torah. God judged Israel for failing in this respect. 
But the Torah does not require the state to rectify this failure through wealth redistribution programs, nor is it ever asserted by the prophets who revealed God's will to the nation that the state was required to take action on behalf of the poor or that God's anger was kindled because the state had not provided welfare programs or wealth redistribution programs for the poor. Certainly, state-enforced wealth redistribution was not a feature of the model of social organisation set forth in the Torah, and there are no texts in Scripture, including Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 15, that will, when correctly exegeted, lend credibility to such a notion. Section 2. Jubilee and the Distribution of Wealth As far as the redistribution of wealth within society is concerned, the Jubilee land laws meant that all land sold in Israel was sold on a 49-year or less leasehold basis. In this sense, therefore, there was no difference between the Jubilee provisions and the modern leasehold purchase of property. The real meaning and significance of the Jubilee lay in its typological nature. The Jubilee land lease provisions, however, were not a measure to help the poor. First, the Jubilee restoration of ancestral lands involved only the descendants of the original Israelite settlers, and immigrants, whether proselytes or settlers, were not affected. And immigrants were usually among the poorest members of the society. Those who were immigrants, whether proselytes or settlers, were not affected, and immigrants were usually among the poorest members of society. If a proselyte living in Israel were desperately poor, the Jubilee land laws would not help him at all. There is no law requiring that land be given to those who were not descendants of the original settlers, no matter how poor they were. And this is simply because the purpose of the Jubilee was not to redistribute wealth or to make it possible for the poor to, quote, start again, end quote, as it has sometimes been argued. A byproduct of the Jubilee inheritance laws may have been that some of the poor were able to start again, but that opportunity was not available to all. Any help the poor may have had from the Jubilee, therefore, was not based on some ideal of wealth redistribution or economic equality, which is unknown in the Bible. Rather, the Jubilee land provisions could only help certain of the poor in a way that was quite incidental to their main purpose, and, even then, only on a purely non-egalitarian basis, namely inherited privilege, something that hardly fits well with modern socialist ideals of equality, Christian or otherwise. Furthermore, the Jubilee legislation might actually exacerbate the poverty of some. Suppose, for instance, that a poor proselyte family moves into the land. The first generation manages to lease some land on which they make a meagre living, but over the years, the harvests do not enable the family to capitalise itself to the extent that it will be able to lease another piece of land on which to earn a living after the Jubilee. When the Jubilee is announced, this poor family becomes landless, and its latter condition is worse than its former. In this case, the Jubilee actually redistributes the land away from the poor, possibly to a much wealthier family. Such cases demonstrate clearly that the purpose of the Jubilee land provisions was not the redistribution of wealth and that its meaning is to be found elsewhere. Second, those who received back their ancestral lands were the rich as well as the poor. These were inheritance laws, not welfare laws. 
they protected the family's inheritance. And this was so for the rich, no less than for the poor. Third, a man may have grown very rich during the fifty years between the jubilees, rich in sheep, cattle, livestock of all kinds, as well as in gold or silver. When he returned any leased land to the hereditary owners, the wealth he had accumulated on the land remained his own. The wealthy kept their wealth and were not required by the Torah or the state to redistribute it to the poor. Of course, there was the requirement that the rich help the poor and less fortunate, and they were morally required to pay their tithes, part of which went to help the poor. But the civil government or state was given no mandate to ensure that they did so. It was a responsibility that they were to shoulder themselves before God through the use of their poor tithe and through charitable giving. God's law demands that the wealthy should be compassionate to the poor. It does not give the state the duty or right of enforcing such compassion. Fourth, after the Jubilee, a man was free to acquire again the land he had previously leased, or other lands, if the owners were prepared to lease them. And if he were rich enough before the Jubilee, he could easily do this, since the Jubilee did not affect his accumulated wealth. From the point of view of the distribution of wealth in society, therefore, there was no difference between the case of a man who acquired land by lease in Israel and that of a shop owner in modern Western society when the lease on his shop comes to an end. He either repurchases the lease or leases premises elsewhere. The owner of the lease is at liberty to resell, to raise the price or to keep the land for his own use. No state welfare or wealth redistribution program is implied by this arrangement today, and neither was it in ancient Israel. Fifth, as a form of wealth or wealth-producing capital, the actual land inherited by the descendants of the original Israelite settlers became increasingly meaningless with each succeeding generation. The Jubilee land lease arrangements were mandatory only in Israel itself. They did not apply to land acquired and held outside Israel, nor did they apply to property within Israelite cities either. The one exception to the latter was property owned by Levites, who retained the right of redemption at any time in all Levitical cities, irrespective of whether those to whom they had leased their property were poor or rich. Leviticus 25.32 Furthermore, as the population grew, the portion of land available to those inherited decreased accordingly since primogeniture was not practised and the land was divided between the inheriting children with a double portion only going to the eldest. Deuteronomy 21, 15-17 Numbers 27, 1-11 Yet the Hebrews were told that if they obeyed God's law God would prosper them and multiply them greatly. Indeed, This was the promise made to Abraham. The significance of the inherited ancestral land, therefore, decreased over time as a form of wealth in the context of an increasingly prosperous society. The Jubilee land provisions were not a measure aimed at providing capital for the poor of succeeding generations to enable them to start again. The Bible makes it clear that there ought to have been no poor among the people of Israel, but it did not require state-enforced and state-controlled wealth redistribution programs as a means of achieving this goal. Rather, such prosperity 
was to be the blessing of God on an obedient society. Deuteronomy 15, 4-6 Which included obedience to those commandments, stipulating that the wealthy should show compassion to the poor. However, the more numerous the people became, the less the effects of the Jubilee land provisions featured as the basis of their prosperity. The significance of the Jubilee, therefore, was far from the welfare system it is supposed by many to have been. Even if it could be argued that the Jubilee was a form of wealth redistribution or welfare arrangement, which I deny, it was an increasingly inadequate one as time passed, even for the privileged ones who benefited from it. Section 3. Help for the poor, private or state-controlled. Few Christians, if any, would deny the fact that the Bible requires the better off and wealthier members of society to help the poor and helpless. Mercy and charity are very clearly required and commanded by God's law. What is denied here, and with biblical precedent, is the idea that the state has the right to determine who should be helped, how much should be given, and what kind of help they should receive. What is also denied is that the state has the right to take upon itself the function of an organisation for collecting and administering the funds needed to help the poor. In short, the state does not have the right to usurp the individual's responsibility to help the poor and to tax him so heavily in order to fund its own welfare programme that he is barely able to provide for his own family without resorting to state welfare, let alone provide for those who are poorer and needier than himself by means of personal charitable giving. Such tax-funded state welfare programmes create the very kind of dependency and powerlessness that biblical charity is aimed at removing, and that is rightly seen as so debilitating. Of course, the Bible does give laws concerning charity, but it does not give the state the right to administer or police those laws. It has already been stated that there are 613 laws in the Torah, and of these, only a comparatively small number have judicial penalties attached to them or require administration by the state. The basic principle of biblical law is self-government under God. If people will not govern themselves properly according to God's law, how can they be expected to elect a government that will do it for them? The whole argument for, quote, Christian, unquote, socialism, is an argument for the abdication to the state of the personal responsibility that God's word requires of man. But if Christians will not shoulder their personal responsibilities, what makes them think that others, and non-believers at that, will do it for them? All that the abdication of personal responsibility to the state creates is the abuse of power. The Bible requires families to care for their own, and where this is not possible, it is the duty of private individuals and groups, and the church, to provide for them. That is precisely the purpose of the diaconate. Unfortunately, many Christians have not only surrendered the family's responsibilities to the state, along with control of many other areas of, quote, secular, unquote, life, but also an important area of the church's responsibility. The state exacts a quadruple tithe, and more from the taxpayer in order to finance this illegitimate business. On the leftovers it now receives, the church is finding it difficult to survive. This is a judgment on the church and the nation 
for its infidelity to the law and gospel of God. Christians should not complain that the state provision of welfare is unchristian in its emphasis and philosophy, since the state has stepped in where the church has abdicated its God-given duty. Had the church remained faithful to its divine mission, the kind of welfare provided now by the state would have been provided by the church from a Christian perspective and within the context of a Christian environment, and it would have been able to screen out welfare abuse more effectively than the state by applying Christian work ethics as a basis for its assessment of those in need. Neither does the answer to poverty lie with Christianizing the state, though, of course, the state should be Christian for the proper reasons. It lies rather in the provision of Christian charity through individual and family care for those in need, through the ministry of the church, since this is part of the church's God-given function, and in removing welfare from the orbit of the state's authority and responsibility. In the Bible, the state is a ministry of public justice. When it becomes a ministry of welfare, education, employment, etc., it ceases to function properly in its God-given role. And justice and mercy are both compromised. No wonder the modern state cannot cope with the breakdown of law and order in society. It is hamstrung in this area by its near total involvement in all other areas of life. Of course, in the Mosaic economy, there were gleaning laws which embodied an important principle. There are equivalent situations and circumstances in modern society where some form of gleaning could be provided, even in built-up cities and urban areas. But in the society of Old Testament Israel, the civil magistrate did not run gleaning programs. The provision of gleaning was required as a moral responsibility of those who farmed the land. But it was not policed by the state. The fact that some may have abandoned their responsibility to provide opportunities for gleaning did not mean that the state should assume the responsibility, since that would simply lead to another form of abuse. The answer to the failure of personal responsibility in any area of life is not for the state to step in and take over man's responsibilities. To expect the state to step in every time men abandon their duties is to embrace totalitarianism as the only way to organise society in a fallen world, since men continually fail in their duties. We can face our responsibilities and the consequences of our failures as free men, or we can sell ourselves into slavery to the all-powerful, predestinating state. To require the state to step in every time men fail is to idolise the state. It is to require the state to save mankind from the consequences of sin and failure. And this inevitably leads to the regulation of every aspect of man's life by the state. It is the rejection of God's providence of God's predestination, and the preferment of state control over man's life. It is, in short, to ascribe the role of God to the state, and thus a form of idolatry. A social order is not defective in its obligation to the poor, just because it does not require the state to administer charity to the poor. But the arguments for socialism, quote, Christian, unquote, or otherwise, whether or not its devotees use the term socialism, always assume that it is. But, in fact, the contrary is true. When the state interferes in welfare, private charitable activities decreases since the funds needed and available to finance charity are plundered by the state through taxation. Furthermore, 
Tax revenues do not simply go to relieve the same needs that individual private charities would have relieved had they received the funds. They are channeled by the state to very different ends, by no means all, or even most of which, are welfare for the deserving poor. First, there is the vast and ever-growing state bureaucracy, an inefficient and blundering edifice by anyone's standards. It costs millions to finance the administration of this delinquent state welfare bureaucracy. There is no incentive for those who work for it to minimise the costs of administration, since, unlike private charities, where workers are often genuinely motivated by compassion for those whose needs they are attending to, the state welfare business is staffed by bureaucrats working their way up their career structures with all the usual industrial costs and inefficiencies that are involved in state-run industries. This bureaucratic tier of state management is immensely expensive to maintain. By contrast, private, decentralised charity is far more efficient since it does not have the massive overheads of the state bureaucracy and is able to screen out spongers without violating anyone's quote, rights end quote, as a citizen. A good example of this contrast is the difference between the USA and Britain. There are far more funds available across the whole spectrum of charitable aims in the United States than there are in Britain with its ineffective and wasteful state welfare programme because the population is not taxed so heavily to pay for the bureaucracy. It is also a good deal cheaper to live in the United States than it is in Britain since we pay vastly inflated prices for the basic necessities of life just for the privilege of being a party to the European economic debacle. The latter fact, which is always the case in a socialist economy, means both that it is more difficult for the poor to make ends meet than it need be, and that it is more difficult for those who are not poor to help the needy, since there is less discretionary income left over from their salaries after the state has taken its, quote, share. Second, private decentralised charity raises the distressing question of who the deserving poor are and who determines who they are. Socialists hate this, of course. As stated above, private charities are more effective in screening out spongers. By contrast, state provision of welfare is subject to abuse by those who can manipulate the political system in order to secure funds for individuals and groups that are not legitimate recipients of welfare in terms of biblical criteria. This includes people who get themselves into economic hardship by mismanaging and wasting their resources and who subsequently refuse to take advice about budgeting as well as those who are on drugs or who gamble and drink their incomes away and refuse to reform their habits or seek help that will lead to reform. At the very least, private charity can offer help with strings attached so that, instead of merely providing funds to fuel bad habits, the recipients can be obliged to receive corrective help. State welfare is notoriously inadequate in this area. Millions of pounds are spent on spongers and those who will not try to change or agree to receive help aimed at correcting their ways, as well as on those who refuse to work even though they are able-bodied, to say nothing of deliberate and organised welfare fraud. On top of this, there is the ever-changing definition of poverty, which is always subject to abuse by politicians who can make political capital out of poverty and by interest groups that can milk this fact 
for their own ends. No doubt the term poverty will soon be applicable to those who are deprived of such essentials of modern life as video machines and computer games. Television is already considered an essential of modern life, lack of which is deemed a factor in the definition of poverty. The Bible teaches that, quote, If anyone will not work, neither let him eat, end quote. 2 Thessalonians 3.10 Of course, this does not apply to those who cannot work, whether through physical ailment or genuine lack of opportunity. But there is far less of the latter than is often thought. Often shopkeepers cannot get staff because those unemployed people who are available for work can claim more state welfare as unemployed persons than they could earn at work. Such attitudes are also to be found in high employment areas. As a consequence, a good deal of state welfare is taken up with providing for the lazy rather than for the poor. This is not only immoral, but also irrational from the economic point of view, since those with shops and businesses have to pay high taxes and rates, local property and business taxes, which are used to fund welfare for such people. Such businesses often cannot pay higher wages precisely because they are taxed so heavily and have to pay high rates to fund the welfare given to those who are available for work but refuse to work because they can claim more money in welfare payments if they are unemployed than they could earn at work. Third, it is also more difficult for a person to live off private charity because it is not anonymous and it is not something one has a right to. Private charity is therefore not only more efficient in terms of administering funds. Because it is more personal, it generates a feeling of obligation and responsibility in the recipient, who is likely to work to free himself of his dependence on others more than one who is able to claim anonymous state welfare, to which he is deemed to have a right. This creates an incentive for those needing charity to work to support themselves, thereby releasing funds for more needy people. The end results of private, decentralised charitable aid are therefore far more effective than those achieved by state welfare. Fourth, people who give to private charities are more likely to make sure that the organisations receiving their funds administer them in a way that is consistent with their own beliefs. Christians give to Christian charities that offer help within a Christian environment and from a Christian perspective and thereby proclaim the gospel in a practical way. State welfare seeks to be religiously neutral and amoral. Although this is not possible, the fact that many think that it is means that state welfare is certainly not offered on a Christian basis. In fact, it is given on a secular humanist basis, which is anti-Christian. If it is argued that the provision of charity and help to the poor cannot be left to individuals, families and the church for fear that this will be inadequate, how can it be argued that it should be left to the state, since the administration of welfare by the state fulfills society's obligation to care for the poor far less satisfactorily in terms of biblical criteria than does private charity? The fact that society does have an obligation to care for the poor, which is to be fulfilled in terms of biblical criteria, means that it cannot be left to the state. God's providence is not defective. Yet, in his providence, God has left helping the poor to the church, the family, and to private individuals and groups, not to the state. 
To argue that this is not good enough is to argue that God's providence, his government of the world, is inadequate. To abdicate one's responsibilities to the state when there is no biblical warrant is to question God's providence as well as his revealed order for society. It is to say that it is not sufficient to leave care of the poor to God's providentially appointed means, that is, church, family and private charity, but that his providence should be supplemented, indeed replaced, by state welfare programmes. This is to place the state in the role of the church as the dispenser of God's mercy. It is the church's commission to preach the gospel and also to heal the sick and care for the poor and needy. The apostles did not subsequently relegate the latter to the state. Section 4. Christian Socialism Many Christians have embraced some form of socialism, especially in Britain, where socialist ideals pervade society and have been institutionalised by both the state and the church. Nevertheless, socialism cannot be squared with scripture. This does not necessarily imply that those who hold these views are not Christians, and someone standing before God should not be judged simply on that basis. However, this should not obscure the fact that such views are sinful, and that those who hold them should repent of their sin. This sin manifests itself on two different levels. First, the problem in Britain is that the whole socialist way of thinking has become so ingrained in our culture that many Christians are unaware of the degree to which it colours their reading of the Bible. Nor are they aware that the Bible addresses these issues decisively and offers an obedient way to think about them. Many simply assume, because they have been told this for so long by the clergy, that the Bible does not say anything directly about social, political and economic issues, or that what it does say is only Old Testament stuff and not for the modern Christian, and therefore they imbibe the humanist alternative without giving the biblical teaching a second thought. The only Christian teaching deemed to be relevant is that the wealthy do have a responsibility to help the poor. How that responsibility is to be realised is not thought to be a legitimate question to ask of the Bible. Instead, it is simply assumed that the responsibility lies with the state. At the very least, this apathy to biblical teaching needs to be repented of. Secondly, however, the problem goes deeper than this for many, though not all. The psychological mainspring of socialist ideology in British society today is envy and hatred of privilege. This is evident in the taxation rates. The rich are taxed so heavily, not because this brings vital revenues into the treasury, brings in very little actually, and most revenues come from the middle classes, who are always the ones to suffer from both right and left-wing taxation policies. The rich are taxed so heavily because it is thought that they are not morally entitled to have a better standard of living and therefore should not be allowed to enjoy their wealth. However much socialists preach about equality and dress it up in Christian-sounding jargon, the fact is that, at the bottom of it, Many are envious of those who are better off than themselves. Therefore they vote for governments that will appease their envy-ridden psyche by penalising the rich, even though this produces no real material benefit for themselves or society. And indeed, 
even hinders economic progress for society as a whole by discouraging those with capital from investing in British industry and business. The Church, of course, used to preach against envy, which was considered one of the seven deadly sins. Today, however, it is unusual to hear envy preached against. Why? Because socialism has turned envy into a virtue, and the clergy, by and large, have swallowed socialism, lock, stock and barrel. And this is so for many Christians also. Quote, Christian, end quote, socialists are not lily-white when it comes to their professed concern for the, quote, poor, end quote, even though their motives may not be as black as their more consistent, non-believing comrades. Envy is sin, and it motivates not a few, quote, Christian, end quote, socialists in their economic and political views. That does not mean that they are damned. It does mean that they should repent of their sin. As for socialism, its consistency with the biblical teaching on compassion and care for the poor in society has yet to be demonstrated. Capitalism can, can certainly be abused, but is not in principle un, unbiblical or unjust. Indeed, the prevalence of the Christian worldview in a nation will lead to the economic organization of society on a capitalist model, as it did after the Reformation in Northern Europe. Socialism, however, is unbiblical and unjust in principle, and no amount of good intentions will make it a fitting ideology to be embraced by those who claim the name of Christ and stand for justice and against oppression. The original authors of modern socialism were certainly not Christians, but rather social revolutionaries attempting to bring about the demise of Christendom. The founders of modern socialism saw Christianity as a great evil. Are we now to believe that somehow Marx merely wanted to develop a social theory that would enable men to be good Christians and fulfill their duty to the poor properly? To see the Jubilee provisions as a form of wealth or capital redistribution is to read an essentially modern idea back into the text of Scripture. It is the result of faulty exegesis, or perhaps a total lack of exegesis, and the desire to find biblical justification for an unbiblical and anti-Christian ideology. It is also the result of a failure to understand the effects of the outworking of socialist principles on the economic, political, and historical levels. Socialist societies have never achieved the utopian ideal of redistribution of wealth and economic prosperity that has so often been claimed for them by the theorists of socialist ideology. The economic growth and social amelioration experienced in the West since the Reformation has been the result of the economic organization of society on the capitalist model, and this was only made possible historically with the rise of Protestant Christian nations of Northern Europe. The Reformation brought a decisive break with feudalism for those nations that embraced it. The Protestant doctrine of the priesthood of all believers and a proper understanding of the Christian's calling in all walks of life, the acceptance of the doctrine of the cultural mandate, and the legitimacy of man's dominion over the world replaced the ignorance and superstition that had characterized so much of life in the medieval period. Exponential economic growth and social amelioration were present typically where the Reformation was embraced, and typically lagged behind in those nations that rejected the Reformation. The emergence of these economically strong Christian nations was the result of people turning to the Bible as the rule of man's life, the light by which society was to order its ways. 
had institutions such as the Jubilee been essentially socialist wealth or capital redistribution programs applied to all nations in every age, the economic history of the West would have been a very different and considerably depressing story. The Meaning of Jubilee But if the Jubilee was not about wealth redistribution, then what was it about? In other words, if the Jubilee was simply a date for terminating a lease, why should it foreshadow the redemption that is the Christ Jesus, or be the occasion for celebration of the good news of salvation? Luke 4, 18-19 That the New Testament seems to suggest. This is an important question, and it is the failure to provide an adequate ex- explanation for the meaning of the principle set forth in the Jubilee that has led to the abuse of the Jubilee in an ad hoc fashion to justify so many kinds of wealth redistribution programs by Christian socialists. It is to this question that we shall now turn. The core of the Jubilee was deliverance and restoration, both in the practical and concrete sense of release from debt and restoration of ancestral land, and in the eschatological sense of pointing to Jesus Christ, who sets the believer free from the, from the burden of sin and restores him to covenantal fellowship with God, with all that that entails. The Jubilee was thus typological in that the release from debt and restoration of ancestral lands pointed to the work of Christ. The Jubilee restoration of family lands established the principle of the of the invoidability of inheritance. This might incidentally bring economic advantages and benefits, or it might not. Since, for example, with an increasing population, the economic benefits to be derived from the Jubilee would be very diluted. Remember, the Jubilee land regulations applied only to rural land, not to city land and buildings, and were limited to Israel, a relatively small geographical area. Moreover, those who had their ancestral lands returned to them might also have to release land to other families. Any advantage to be gained from Jubilee might be cancelled out. In fact, as we've already seen, some might lose out to a considerable extent, even though poor. There are two aspects to this inheritance law. One, the principle of avoidability of inheritance, and two, the specific conditions under which the principle was enacted in Israel. Clearly, the specific conditions given in the law are limited to Israel. Since the Jubilee did not affect the land acquired by the Hebrews outside of Israel, indeed not even city land within Israel, there is no basis for the application of these lease restrictions to modern society. That is to say, the specific provisions of the Jubilee land lease laws had a limited application, even to the people of Israel and even to the land of Israel itself. Unlike the law generally, the Jubilee land laws did not address Gentile nations, nor are the Gentiles ever considered guilty of breaking them. This point is not made on the basis of some dispensational hermeneutic, but simply on the basis of a consistent reading of the Mosaic Code itself. The the general principle, however, i.e. the inviolability of inheritance, remains applicable. 
just as the general principle of the sacrificial law, that there is no remission of sin without the shedding of blood, remains in force even though the old covenant sacrificial rituals themselves are no longer practiced. The the expropriation of a legitimate inheritance by the state is thus outlawed. All legitimate taxes, e.g. tithes, in in the Bible are levied on increase, not property per se or inheritance. Over and above this, however, there is an eschatological doctrine of inheritance involved here, and it is this that it that is of primary importance for the typological nature of the Jubilee Inheritance Law. The eschatological doctrine of inheritance is a much neglected theological concept. Possibly it has never been fully and properly developed by Christian theologians. It is closely linked with the doctrine of a adoption, which is also a much neglected con- doctrine. The Westminster Confession of Faith is untypical in including a chapter on adoption. As joint heirs and members of the family of God by adoption, Christians have an inheritance that is imperishable. Under the Old Covenant, this inheritance was set forth typologically in the land of Israel. The Jubilee restoration of ancestral lands every 50 years pointed to the fact that this inheritance was inalienable. The people of Israel were under the tutelage of this kind of typology, as a child who is under age is under a tutor until the appointed time when God sent forth his son to redeem his people. Now, however, in Christ the believer has come of age and thus enters into his inheritance. As Christians, the inheritance that the Jubilee typology pointed to is ours. Just as we fully partake of the benefits of Christ's atonement and no longer look to the sacrifice of bulls and goats, so also we look to the inheritance that is ours in Christ and not to the land of Israel. We fully partake of Christ's inheritance as joint heirs with him. We are not under the types that set, that set this forth, the Jubilee, but rather experience the actual fulfillment of what the Jubilee pointed to, salvation in Christ, and joint heirship with him. Since it is the whole earth that the Father has given to the Son as, as his inheritance, Psalm 2, Psalm 37, 9, Psalm 115, 16, Matthew 5, 5, Romans 8, 15-17. It is the whole earth that believers inherit as members of the family of God by adoption through faith in Christ. With the coming of Christ and Pentecost, the gospel is preached to the whole world, Gentile as well as Jew, and the promises and blessings of the covenant are made available to, for all nations. The whole earth is to be conquered for Christ to the preaching of the gospel. The specific provisions of the Jubilee land law related to Israel as the chosen nation under the tutelage of types. These specific provisions are, therefore, like all typological law, of limited duration. They function until what they foreshadowed comes. They cease to be observed in the same way once Christ has come. But just like typological atonement law relating to the sacrifice of bulls and goats, the general principle underpinning the Jubilee typology is permanently put into force by the coming of the one whom it foreshadowed. Christ's coming necessitates both that the specific provisions relating to Israel as a nation under the tutelage of type cease, and that the general principles underpinning them are permanently enforced. For example, Christ's coming 
brought the sacrifice of bulls and goats to an end, because he made a perfect sacrifice of permanent validity for all time. But the fact that he came and made a blood sacrifice for sin established permanently the principle underpinning the old covenant sacrifices, namely, that without the shedding of blood there can be no forgiveness. Thus, although the general principles underpinning typological law continue, the the specific regulations cease. At the destruction of Jerusalem in AD 70, the nation of Israel as a geopolitical power ended, and along with this, the specific provisions of the Jubilee land law came to an end also. The body of Christ, as the household of God by adoption through faith in Christ, inherits the benefits and privileges of Israel. The general principles of the Jubilee law continue, however. Just as the necessity of an atonement for sin continues, so also the general principle underpinning Jubilee land law, i.e., the inviolability of inheritance, continues, but now it is transformed by the coming of Christ. What does this mean? It means that the earth belongs to the rightful heirs, to those through faith in Christ and obedience to his word, shall rule over it to the glory of God by bringing all things under the dominion of Lord Jesus Christ. Christ taught this, Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Matthew 5.5 Go ye therefore and teach all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Ghost, teaching them to observe all things whatsoever I have commanded you. Matthew 28.19-20 the Jubilee land provisions taught that the land belongs to God and that his provision cannot be disinherited. The typology of the Jubilee pointed to the fact that the whole earth belongs to God and has been given to Christ as his inheritance and to all those who by faith look to him for salvation. Those who are members of God's family by adoption. This fact becomes a historical reality with the coming of Christ. All power and authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Christ, and he is now claiming his inheritance, the preaching of the gospel. Matthew 28, 18-20 Christ cannot be disinherited, nor can his people. Of the increase of his government and peace there shall be no end. Isaiah 9, 7 The earth must be possessed and subdued by the rightful heirs. God will accomplish this for his own glory. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. Isaiah 9.20 The principle underpinning the Jubilee land provisions is still in operation, but not in the way that it, it was under the specific provisions of the typological law. The principle of inviolability of inheritance means the state has no authority to expropriate the wealth of the people by means of inheritance taxes. It may only levy taxes on the increase. The earth belongs to Christ and to those who are adopted into the family of God through faith in Christ and who are consequently joint heirs with Christ. Matthew 5.5, Romans 8.16-17 For the state to expropriate this inheritance, which, though it is an eschatological promise, is also a tangible and real inheritance of the physical earth in history. Psalms 156 verse 16, is sacrilege. The state may only levy taxes according to principles laid down in God's law, 
which restricts taxation by the state at the most to a second tithe on the increase. Conclusion The Jubilee land law represented the passing on of a specific form of wealth, namely inheritance, by what is in the Bible the fundamental economic unit in society, and the provider of of the welfare and education of its members, the family. As the basic economic unit in society, it is the duty of the family, not the state, to provide welfare, education, and health care to it for its members. When the state expropriates the wealth of the family through inheritance tax, death duties, etc., it makes it impossible for the family to do this. Hence, for Christians, to use the Jubilee as a rationale for advocating state-enforced wealth redistribution programs is to, stand, is to stand the Jubilee on its head, to contradict and overrun the very purpose for which it was given. The requirement that people of Israel were to help those less fortunate than themselves was to be put into force through the family's stewardship of its resources, and also to some extent through the church's ministry to the poor. This pattern for social order is repeated in the New Testament, 1 Timothy 5, 3-16. The Jubilee land law guaranteed the passing on of inheritance to the basic economic unit of society, the family. It was the responsibility of the family then to provide care for the less fortunate and the poor, and also the responsibility of the church, which is funded by the family through the tithe, where the poor have no family or where the family is not able to provide for its own. For the state to expropriate a family's inheritance by means of inheritance taxes and death duties or by means of any other form of wealth redistribution is therefore theft, and the overturning of the general principle underpinning the Jubilee land law. The eschatological doctrine of inheritance, typified by the Jubilee, means the joint heirship of the whole earth by those who are adopted members of God's family through faith in Christ. The earth belongs to Christ and to his people. It may not be expropriated by the state or by heathen nations, and moreover the whole earth must submit to this fact. Be wise now, therefore, O ye kings. Be instructed, ye judges of the earth. Kiss the sun, lest he be angry, and ye perish from the way, when his wrath is kindled but a little. Blessed are all they that put their trust in him. Psalm 2, 10-12, Psalm 149.